joining us once again on the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast. I'm your host, Vic Sage. This episode marks the first show in the new format we talked about on the River Raid episode. Namely, we are going to be doing seasons of each of the podcasts that I produce, with Diary being the first. And for this episode, we are going to be talking about the classic 1982 Nintendo platformer, one that could have created an entirely different franchise for the company had the original plans of its designers panned out. Grab your nearest can of spinach, because we are going to be talking about Popeye. Now with Popeye, we are finally swinging back to a game that I originally encountered at that fabled showbiz pizza of my youth. As I discussed on that episode of the podcast, by the time I was finally able to walk through the doors of the local showbiz pizza, it had been open for about a year or so. Which means that the first time I stepped up to the Popeye cabinet, it had already left what I call the showcase row, where the most popular and latest games were on display, to be moved into the lower level of the arcade. This is also where I first played the likes of Moon Patrol, Mr. Do, Jungle Hunt, and another Nintendo classic, Donkey Kong Jr. In fact, Donkey Kong Jr. was located right next to the Popeye cabinet. As to what drew me to Popeye in the first place, that's a pretty easy answer. Growing up, my father worked a factory job, one that saw him leaving extremely early in the morning. So I would have three or so hours before it was time to head out and catch the school bus. Thankfully for myself, we had the TBS Superstation, which showed a pretty amazing collection of classic animated shorts, like Looney Tunes, Tom and Jerry, and of course Popeye. Now, that included both the exceptional Fleischer cartoons, as well as the famous Studios shorts. Of course, I was also a fan of Popeye thanks to the 1980 live-action film starring the late and great Robin Williams and Shelley Duvall. So, the fact that there was a video game based on an animated character that I loved I quickly inserted my token and gave Popeye a go. I was not disappointed, and while I have to admit that I didn't do all that well during the first game, Popeye became a game I would always plug a couple of tokens into every Saturday at Showbiz. And, before it eventually left the floor completely, I was able to get to the third stage of the game. Another thing that drew me to it was, quite frankly, the beautiful graphics of the game itself. It was the closest thing to playing a cartoon character at that time. Online, I've read that the reason for this was due to game characters being rendered in higher resolution, so they kind of pop off the screen. Now, in 40 plus episodes of the Diary Podcast, we have talked a bit about Nintendo. From its early history, being founded as a manufacturer of playing cards, to becoming a global name tied with video games. However, I don't think I have ever passed along the fact that Nintendo's first foray into video games was thanks to the Magnavox Odyssey home system. In 1974, they paid for the rights to distribute the system in Japan. 
Three years later, the company was manufacturing its own system, developed in conjunction with Mitsubishi Electronics, the first in the color TV game series, of which there would be four such consoles between 1977 and 1980. The color TV game 6, color TV game 15, color TV game racing 112, and computer TV game. The designs of the last two were worked on by none other than Shigeru Miyamoto. In fact, I've read online that it was the first assignment that he worked on for Nintendo after being hired in 77. The games available on the first two systems appear to have been Pong clones, with the color TV game Racing 112 offering a top-down racing game, similar to Taito's Speed Race, and Computer TV game offered a version of Computer Othello. Speaking of Miyamoto, much like I talked about on the Donkey Kong episode, it appears that while the legendary designer developer worked on the game, it was Ikigami Electronics that produced the game for Nintendo, with some sources online saying that the company also was responsible for working on Popeye, Congo Bongo, Space Fever, and even Zaxxon, to name a few. It is both Miyamoto and Ginyo Takeda that we have to thank for their design work on 1982's Popeye. Takeda appears to have mostly overseen the production of the game, but I've read online he also had a hand in the gameplay design. The idea of a Popeye game came about when Nintendo was trying to come up with a game to produce to fill those radar scope cabinets. That would, of course, eventually be used for Donkey Kong. It was Miyamoto who suggested they work on a Popeye arcade game. The character, after all, was still well-known thanks to the various Saturday morning cartoon series of the time, and of course, those original shorts being shown in syndication. The issue, though, was they couldn't get the rights to the characters from King Features Syndicate, so the designers reworked their original idea of Bluto absconding olive oil and Popeye attempting to rescue the Lady Fair. Obviously, after seeing the success that Donkey Kong achieved, King Features Syndicate had a sudden change of heart about the idea of everyone's favorite spinach-eating Sailor Man finding his way to video games. You might not know this, but Popeye's first appearance in a video game came courtesy of the August 5th, 1981 Nintendo Game & Watch handheld title, one in which Popeye must attempt to catch objects thrown to him by olive oil from a dock on the left-hand side of the screen while dodging the objects thrown at him by Brutus from a ship on the right-hand side of the screen. A second Game & Watch was released in 83, though this one could sort of be called a brawler, with Popeye and Brutus trading blows, each attempting to force each other off a pier. Since I talked quite a bit about Miyamoto on the Donkey Kong episode, I felt it would be best to shine the spotlight on Ginyo Takeda for this episode. Takeda worked with Nintendo from 1972 until he retired back in 2017. He worked on the laser clay shooting system, which I believe we talked about on that Donkey Kong episode, all the while he was still attending classes at the university. Takeda would go on to work a lot on the hardware side of things for Nintendo, like heading the team that created the battery packs for the Legend of Zelda carts. But he would also contribute to games like Punch-Out! and Star Tropics. Although, perhaps an even greater accomplishment is he is credited for developing the analog controller for the Nintendo 64. Takeda would also work on the design for the Nintendo GameCube. That includes the controllers, the console itself, and even the modem adapter. He was put in charge as the head of development for the Nintendo Wii U hardware before he retired. And, rightfully so, at the 2018 DICE Awards, 
Ginyo Takeda was honored with the Lifetime Achievement Award for both his hardware work with Nintendo as well as his leadership in technological development. Before we dive into the gameplay aspects of Popeye, I should add that I've read that when working on the 1982 arcade game, Miyamoto has been said to have watched Popeye cartoons, freezing the images at times to better capture the animation for the graphics in the game. And, like I mentioned earlier, make no mistake about it, Popeye really is a beautiful looking game. Popeye tasks one to two players, taking alternate turns in guiding the iconic comic strip cartoon and film star through three different stages, in an attempt to collect the various items that float down towards the bottom of the screen, released by Olive Oil. Movement of Popeye is controlled by way of a four-way joystick, allowing the character to travel left and right and up and down in those directions. For the latter, that is accomplished by way of climbing up and down the stairs and ladders that connect the platform levels in the stages. As I just said, there are three stages in Popeye. While all the stages have water at the bottom of the screen, the first stage is generally known as the docks. The second stage is the city or streets stage, with the third stage taking place on a docked sailing vessel, hence the ship stage. The names of the stages, I suppose, depend on if you were checking out the original 1982 flyers for Europe or magazine ads of the day. After completing the third stage, the game starts back on stage one at a higher difficulty. While Donkey Kong might have originally been dreamed up as a Popeye game, Jumpman lived up to his name with the ability to jump over obstacles. Our one-eyed Sailor Man has no such ability, but at least he can throw haymakers with the punch button in an attempt to defend himself against the beer bottles and skulls that are thrown and bounced towards the player. This is a good time, I suppose, to talk about both the enemies a player must contend with as well as the overall object of the game. As we are shown from a brief opening animation at the start of the game, after Brutus declares his love for olive oil, his heart is broken when she spurns him for Popeye, and he's going to take it out on our favorite Sailor Man. On all three stages, Olive Oil is at the top of the screen, walking back and forth between her house and Popeye's on the first stage, releasing heart-shaped kisses that float as if on the wind towards the bottom of the stage. Once it reaches the water, Popeye only has a few moments before it disappears. Before doing so, the game alerts you to the danger with a frantic series of musical notes. Now, if Popeye fails to collect a heart before it sinks beneath the waves, Olive's heart is broken and the player loses a life, as well as seeing Olive Oil wag her finger at Popeye in anger. The same is true for the second and third stages, with Olive releasing musical notes in the street stage and letters that spell help in the ship stage. The player must collect 24 hearts in the first stage, 16 musical notes in the street stage, and 24 letters that spell help in the ship stage. A quick side note, you will notice that in the Nintendo title, Popeye's iconic nemesis is named Brutus. If you are a fan of Popeye, you probably already know that when he was introduced in the Segar comic strips on September 12th of 1932, his name was originally Bluto the Terrible. He was only ever intended to show up for the one story. It was when Popeye was adapted into animated form the following year by Fleischer Studios that they used the character as the main antagonist although frequently as different characters, like when he was used as Sinbad the Sailor, etc. Apparently, after the theatrical shorts had ceased being produced in 1957, it was assumed that Paramount Pictures, who had distributed the shorts, owned Bluto's name, which was not true. But as this was not known by King Feature Syndicate at the time, when they began producing new cartoons for TV, they called the big lug Brutus. 
Then, in the Hanna-Barbera Saturday Morning series, the all-new Popeye Hour, the brute's name reverted back to Bluto. I bet when you tuned in to listen to a podcast about the Popeye arcade game, you never knew you'd get so much information about the animated series. Back to the game, however. Brutus is by far the deadliest foe Popeye has to face, as he will toss bottles at you. And while each one can be broken with a quick tap of the punch button, it also requires a bit of timing. Especially in later stages, when Popeye is stuck between bottles and those bouncing skulls I previously mentioned coming from the left and right sides of the screen at the same time. If either Brutus, a bottle, or a skull makes contact with Popeye, he loses a life. What makes Brutus so deadly is he's constantly on the hunt for Popeye, pacing back and forth across the ledges of the stage. And if Popeye is on the same level, he will not hesitate to walk over and just knock Popeye off into the drink. If the player is on a level below Brutus, they are still not safe, as he will quite often lean down and try to swipe at Popeye. Or if you're on a level above him, he will jump up and try to snag you. Even worse, in my opinion, is the Brute's ability to hunker down and then leap down to lower levels, causing the screen to shake from his weight, but more importantly, upon landing, he's immediately swiping at the player to cost them an extra man. Or just landing on Popeye with his mighty leap. I can assure you that back when I first played Popeye at that showbiz pizza, I lost a life immediately after starting the game. As when Brutus came near me, I just punched him. I've seen the same thing happen numerous times at the arcade too, when people first start playing it. There's only one time in the game that a player can safely give Brutus a punch in the jaw. That is after punching the can of spinach, which will only be available one time during a stage. And if you're on stage one, it will switch positions appearing on the tops of two oil cans located on the left-hand side of the screen. On the street stage, it is at least easily found in the window on the third level of the right-hand side of the stage. And on the ship stage, it alternates again between the second and third level, yet again on the right-hand side of the stage. Grabbing that can of spinach by using the punch button will immediately cause Brutus to start running for his life while Popeye becomes red-hued and flexes his muscles with his newfound strength. It is up to the player to run after Brutus, as this effect only lasts for 10 seconds. Making contact by either running into or actually punching the Brute will cause Brutus to fly across to the opposite side of the screen, sometimes bouncing across the screen to the left and right before plummeting into the drink. This is a short-lived reprieve, however, as soon you will see him pop his head above the water and climb back onto the fourth level and start chasing you again. By the way, catching Brutus is easier said than done, as depending on which stage you are on, Brutus manages to run a little faster than Popeye after he nabs that spinach. In some of the levels, there are breaks in the ledges, like with the street and ship stages. Brutus can easily hop down to a lower level and keep out of reach. Granted, Popeye can use these too for a quick escape from Brutus, when he isn't powered up with the spinach. The other foe that players will have to deal with is the Sea Hag. And while this is at the very least a stationary enemy, with her magical abilities, she can materialize on the sides of the stages, hurl a bottle at Popeye, and disappear. Actually, she frequently will appear on both sides of a level and chuck beer bottles at Popeye, which in later stages requires quick work with the joystick, turning to the right and left to punch them before they take the player out. Bear in mind, you will also have Brutus to deal with, either taking the opportunity to leap up or down at you while the player's attention is focused on smashing those bottles. 
Or, when you have Brutus on the same level as Popeye, it can be a deadly combination of his thrown beer bottles and the sea hags. Yet again, with the ability to come at you from both directions at the same time. After clearing the ship stage for the first time, when the new dock stage begins, the sea hag will perch atop a trio of skulls, replacing Olive's house actually, tossing skulls into the air which will fall down to the levels below, bounce, and continue to drop down levels until they splash into the water. Popeye can punch the skulls if they get too close, but their bouncing effect as well as being able to drop down from above make them extremely dangerous. <laughs> The Sea Hag will also do this on the street stages after a player has initially cleared the first trio of stages, but at least she won't ever be able to do this on the ship stage. Although, you still have to deal with her chucking beer bottles at your noggin. You cannot harm the Sea Hag, by the way. In fact, I have to give credit to the original flyer released by Nintendo for the United States, which states, quote, Meanwhile, annoyed at the nasty Sea Hag, Olive orders Popeye to smash her smush. I cannot do it, says Popeye. I am a gentleman. I does not hit dames. End quote. However, speaking of the ship stage, there is one more foe for you to be worried about. The Sea Hag's Buzzard, who will appear on the left-hand side of the stage and then fly low over the levels of the ship, obviously costing Popeye a life if it comes into contact with him. Popeye can at least punch the buzzard in its beak to get rid of it, but this flying pest does return again after a short period of time. Now, there are elements of each stage I think I should point out. I mentioned that with the street and ship stages, the levels of the stage, or the flooring if you will, are broken up. There are always four levels in a stage. These are the paths that Popeye and Brutus walk on. On the dock stage, you don't have to worry about breaks in the levels. There is a ladder in the middle of the second and third level. This can only be climbed down, not back up, forcing the player to move up and down the levels by way of the stairs on the far sides of the right and left hand sides of the screen. There is also a bucket that is hanging above that ladder with a punching bag to the right of it. This is used when Brutus is standing beneath it. Popeye can wrap around from the topmost right and left hand sides of the stage. The player must walk off of the right hand level and hit the punching bag on his way down. It will slide over and knock that bucket loose, plummeting and hopefully landing on Brutus's head, who normally doesn't just stand around. It stuns Brutus for a short time, allowing the player to walk past him safely until he removes that bucket. Okay, with the street stage, there is the addition of Wimpy on the bottom left-hand side of the screen, standing on one side of a teeter-totter. If Popeye walks off the end of the third ledge, he will fall onto the teeter-totter and be catapulted upwards to the first level. The same is true for Brutus, though. Also on the street stage is none other than Sweepy, who is floating up and down on a ledge with the aid of a giant yellow balloon. On the bottom side of that ledge are handholds, and if Popeye manages to come in contact with them, as he's being shot upwards off that teeter-totter, he gets a nice set of bonus points. With the ship stage, for every letter that Popeye collects to spell help, a piece of a ladder is constructed in the middle of the screen. After the 24th letter is collected, the ladder is completed, and the stage is cleared, with Popeye rescuing Olive Oil from the top of the crow's nest where she's being held prisoner. Also of note on this stage is a blue platform that moves back and forth, crossing the large gap in the first level. It moves on its own, but as soon as Popeye steps on it, the player will be ferried quickly to the other side, which is useful in grabbing those letters as they float to the bottom of the screen. 
Keeping in mind, you will always receive a higher point value when nabbing one of the collectible objects from the top level. Speaking of score, here is a quick rundown. Grabbing an object from the top level earns you 500 points. The second level is worth 300 points. Third level objects get you 100 points. And if an item reaches the fourth level, sinking into the water, it will earn you 50 points. You should also keep in mind that all point scoring actions in the game are doubled while you are powered up after eating the spinach. Each bottle and skull that a player helps Popeye to smash are worth 100 points each. That bucket landing on Brutus's head can earn you massive points, although they are slightly reversed. What I mean is, if you manage to get it to hit him while he is on the fourth level, or the bottom level, you earn a whopping 4,000 points, 2,000 for the third level, and 1,000 for dropping it on his noggin on the second level, which is, quite frankly, the easiest. And while the bucket can only be used the one time, if you have free time, you can keep hitting that punching bag for 30 points at a time. Knocking Brutus into the drink after getting the spinach will earn you 3,000 points with 1,000 points being awarded to you each time you punch the sea hag's buzzard in the beak. And last but not least, you will earn 500 points for grabbing onto Sweet Pea's ledge in the street stage. And now, these messages. My turn. My point. This new Popeye video game has the boys fighting worse than ever. Popeye, it's my game. It's got three screens just like the arcade. Watch out! Yikes! Uh-oh. Fight like a man! Where's me spinach? Yow! I'm gonna choke you, wimp. I ain't wimpy. I'm much better looking. <laughs> New Popeye video game, available for most popular home video and computer systems. Say, has you heard the news? Yeah, I want to tell him. I want to tell him. Gentlemen, the news is riveting, riveting, absolutely riveting. What the boys are trying to say is that Parker Brothers, Popeye, Cubert, and Pogger are not only available for the Atari 2600, but for the Commodore 64 home computer, Atari 5200, and ColecoVision. About as close to real arcade graphics and action as you can get. One thing I hate since I pushed the announcement. Popeye, Cubert, and Frogger. Also for all Commodore, Atari systems, and TI. Now's your nose. Now, as I mentioned before, Popeye may not have found quite the same success as Donkey Kong, but the truth of the matter is it was still popular. Enough so, as you heard in some of those ads, it found itself being ported to the more popular home console and computers of the day. In a new addition to the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast, we have Earl Green of thelogbook.com and creator of those wonderful Phosphor.Fossil retro gaming videos to talk a bit about some of the home ports for Popeye. We have transport. Thanks to the diligent efforts of Parker Brothers, who held the home video game license for the Popeye arcade game, Nintendo really didn't have to break a sweat in order for this to become one of the most widely ported, widely officially licensed ported arcade games of its era. The officially licensed part is kind of important because many consoles had their own versions of Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, Space Invaders, or what have you that didn't license the original game. Popeye, however, was kind of unique, and it couldn't have been easy or cheap to license it 
because if you think about it, Parker Brothers not only had to license the game from Nintendo, they had to, once again, license the characters from King Feature Syndicate. It's probably why Parker Brothers ported the game to every system under the sun, because that was probably the best way of making sure they made their money back on the deal. There were versions for the Atari 2600, the Atari 5200, the Atari 8-bit home computers, the ColecoVision, the Intellivision, the TI-99-4A, the Commodore 64, and the Tandy Color Computer. Perhaps the most surprising port is the Odyssey 2. There was an Odyssey 2 version of Popeye. Well, that may be a bit of a misnomer. There was a video pack version, the video pack being the European equivalent of the Odyssey 2. The Parker Brothers games were never released in the North American market, but European video pack owners got to play Frogger, Cubert, Popeye, and Super Cobra on their video pack consoles. The Odyssey 2 version is probably the weakest port out of all of those that I just listed. The graphical demands of the game, just they're just a little bit beyond the Odyssey 2's capability. Most of the other versions are actually really solid. 1983 also saw Nintendo do a home version of Popeye, but it was in the Japanese market only for the Famicom as one of the three launch titles for that system. An NES version of Popeye was made available at a later date after that console was introduced in the home market. There was also a tabletop Popeye arcade game manufactured by Nintendo. However, it was not a port of the arcade game of the same name. Thank you, Earl. Obviously, while not a port of Popeye, before I started recording this episode, I happened to come across an article by Brett Weiss in the January 2018 issue of Old School Gamer magazine, focusing on an Intellivision title that borrowed a bit from both Donkey Kong and Popeye. That was Imagic's Beauty and the Beast, a game that I was never able to get my hands on back in the day. If you too are a fan of old school gaming, you should check out Old School Gamer Magazine. I'll be sure to include a link on this podcast post on the Pop Culture Retrorama site. Now, we do have Popeye at the arcade, a cocktail version in fact, one of the first 50 titles that Shea obtained at the time we opened the doors. While obviously the arcade is still closed at the moment due to COVID-19, I can tell you that Popeye is a popular title. In the early days of the arcade, I could lay claim to holding the high score. Kept it for a while, too. Then, a young man named Spencer set his sights on the game. And let me tell you, he was amazing to watch. Easily nabbing the high score spot, and I believe he was capable of getting to the third set of stages. I might have posted some video of him in action on the Diary Facebook page, but don't hold me to that. And friends, I think that about wraps up our episode. As always, I want to thank you again for taking the time to listen to the show. I really do appreciate your support and hope that you will all enjoy the second season of the podcast. I know I'm not an expert, just a fan of classic arcade and home console games and just enjoy talking about them. The Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast is currently available on iTunes. I'm working on rebuilding the podcast library, a result of switching from the Retroist site to the Pop Culture Retrorama one. You can check out daily posts by visiting www.popcultureretrorama.com. The Diary of an Arcade Employee is available on Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. No matter how you listen to the show, if you have a moment and enjoy the podcast, why not give us a rating and a review to help us find new listeners? 
You can find out more about the Arcadia Retrocade by visiting Facebook, or for daily posts, you can check out the Diary of an Arcade Employee Podcast Facebook page. I do my best to share all manner of vintage arcade and home console fun multiple times a day. I want to thank Earl Green again. Earl's a frequent contributor to the pop culture Retrorama site, as well as being a very good friend to the arcade, having donated most of his collection of home console games and more to Arcadia. Earl also happens to head up thelogbook.com, one of the longest-running websites for literally all things pop culture-related. If you have any feedback or comments about the podcast, you can always reach me on Facebook or throw me an email at vicsagepopculture at gmail.com. You also can often find me posting videos of the arcade on my Instagram account, which is simply vicsage underscore. Now, of course want to thank The Retroist. For over a decade, The Retroist has provided a spot on the internet where fans of all things retro can visit and enjoy the best retro-related articles and podcasts. I certainly wouldn't have my own site or multiple podcasts without The Retroist support. And after a brief hiatus, The Retroist has started posting on his website once again. He's even working on new podcasts, so make sure to check it out. Why not have a token on me as you listen to a clip of the game I will talk about next week? This has been a Pop Culture Retrorama podcast. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. The Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast is not affiliated with or authorized by Taito, Nintendo, King Features, or any of the individuals and businesses that have been mentioned in the show. All music and sound clips from the mentioned video games are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purpose of review, criticism, and commentary only, and are not intended to infringe. Oh, it's you, you double-crosser! End of line.